Well, I seriously considered not preaching this sermon. Uh, Instead, handing it off to one of our other elders. It's not that I don't understand this text. I think the message of this text is clear enough. Uh, Rather, there is a component of this text that I just simply don't do very well. It's not the paying of taxes. Uh, I actually have very few qualms with our present tax code. I've spent considerable time in other countries where uh, taxes are either much higher or civil services that they provide much worse or both. And I actually find myself glad to do my part. Although, just like everybody else, I wish the government, particularly the federal government, was more efficient in the way they spent my tax money. I'm glad to pay my taxes. Uh, Neither do I have within me a naturally rebellious streak that objects to the very notion of government control. On the whole, I'm not anti-government. In fact, I'm rather pro-government. As you learned last week, I believe government, though deeply flawed by human sin, is a gift of God's common grace. Rather, my struggle with this text comes at the end of verse 7, where Paul says, Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Right? No problem so far. Respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And there's my struggle. Now, as anyone who is friends with me on Facebook knows, I have been critical of our current president. Uh, It should be noted that my criticism has less to do with his policies and more to do with his personality and his character. And let me be clear that I don't think that criticism in and of itself is sinful. I think that one can be critical of a governing official and still be submissive and respectful. The problem is that all too often, my criticism has crossed the line over into disrespect and a mocking tone that is unbecoming of a Christian, let alone a minister of the gospel. And things got so bad a while back that I had to be rebuked by a member of our church who did so courageously, respectfully, and privately. And she was right, and I knew it. And I've tried since then to uh, bite my tongue and to guard my heart. Uh, But this is still a struggle for me, and that's why I thought about not preaching this text because, frankly, I don't feel qualified. Uh, I feel a little hypocritical in calling you to respect and honor those whom God has placed in authority over you when I struggle and often fail to do so myself. But I decided, I decided to go ahead with this for a couple of reasons that I want to share with you from the outset. Uh, First, I think it is important to acknowledge that we, including me, are works in progress. Uh, Frankly, if I had to wait until I had a text mastered in both its doctrinal and ethical content, then I could never preach. Perfection must be the goal, but it can never be the standard of Christian sanctification. So I think that it is important 
to model for you what we should do with every passage of Scripture, which is to place ourselves under the authority of the text to confess our failings and to, con- seek, to, con- and to seek to conform our lives to its righteous demands by grace through faith in the power of the Spirit. And that's what I've sought to do with this text. We are in the process of transformation. We're not there yet. And this process involves being continually, week by week, day by day, renewed in our minds by the Word and the Spirit of God. Secondly, though, I decided to preach this text because I don't think I'm alone in this struggle. In fact, judging from our church's social media presence, I know I'm not. It's not, or it is rather common for us not only to voice our disagreement with our governing officials, which is fine, that is a benefit of living in a free society, but also to ridicule those governing officials that we don't agree with, as well as our fellow citizens on the other side of a given issue. The culture at large has become so polarized and political discourse has become so partisan that it has created this either you're with us or you're against us mentality that unduly idolizes those we agree with and unfairly villainizes those we don't. But as those who are called to be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, we've got to be different. We've got to be different than the world around us, which means that our speech has got to be different, including our online discourse. When Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, that includes the words we speak online. And the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, includes the things that we say and the stories we choose to share. So I decided to preach this sermon, and I ask you this morning to join me in laying our hearts and our lives and our social media accounts bare before the living word of God to confess our sins together and to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be respectful, honorable truth tellers, whether in person or online. Whoever it was that said you should never discuss religion or politics in polite company was wiser than most, but that's not what I'm advocating. I'm not suggesting that we never engage in the important issues of our day. In fact, I would hate to be in a church so bland and innocuous that it never said anything of substance for fear of offending someone. We've got to speak truth to power and to society. We've got to take a public stand for righteousness and justice and life. So it's not that I want you to stop discussing the important issues. Rather, I want First Baptist Nixa, myself included, to discuss the important issues differently than the world does. Namely, with respect for our governing authorities, whoever they may be, and for one another, however they may vote. Now, with that introduction, let's dive into the second part of this sermon on God, government, and the Christian citizen from Romans 13, 1 to 7. 
Last week I said that there were three questions that needed to be answered from this text. Question number one, what is the legitimate God-ordained role of government? Question number two, what is the responsibility of the Christian citizen to that government? And question number three, is there ever a time when a Christian should resist the governing authorities? Last week, we answered the first of those questions by noting that the God-ordained role of government is to promote the good of human society by setting parameters for human behavior, by protecting humanity from egregious outbursts of evil, by fostering the prosperity of human society and culture, and by providing for the weakest members of society. The God-ordained role of human government is to promote the good in those four ways and to punish evil and so to restrain human sin. Both The promotion of good and the punishment of evil are the role of government and are gifts of God's common grace to mankind. This morning, we're going to seek answers to the second and the third questions. From this passage, Romans 13, 1 through 7, I find four responsibilities of the Christian citizen toward the governing authorities. And let me be clear that when I say the governing authorities, I mean, because I think Paul means, the local, the state, or we might say regional, and the federal or national authorities. Both those at all three of the levels who enact laws and those who enforce the laws. Okay, so I'm talking about the president. I'm talking about members of Congress. I'm talking about governors, state legislators, mayors, city council members, judges, law enforcement officers, IRS agents, health officials, all who are in authority, says Paul in 1 Timothy 2.1. The first responsibility of the Christian citizen to those governing authorities is the overarching command given to us, and the three that follow regard the specific outworkings of that one general exhortation. So let's walk through all four responsibilities in turn. First, the overarching command of this text and the underlying responsibility which a Christian owes to the governing authorities which God has placed over him is submission. Paul says in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He says again in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection. As I said, everything which follows could be subsumed under this heading of subjection or submission. But I want to begin here and I want to treat this responsibility separately because it has to do not only with our outward actions, it has to do also with our inward attitudes towards those authorities. Now, several commentators note the, the attitudinal component of the word that Paul uses here. For instance, one of them writes, to submit or to be subject to, is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy, to acknowledge as a general rule that certain people and institutions have authority over us. And here's what I want you to know. It is a general posture toward government that Paul demands here of Christians. Okay, It's not just an outward posture, it's a 
overall posture of both our actions and our attitudes. And I think that there are three attitudes or components that make up this general posture of submission. The first is reverence, by which I mean reverence for God. In other words, a posture of submission to our governing authorities requires that I recognize that God has ordained the institution of government and he has specifically appointed those whom he chose for those positions of authority. Therefore, argues Paul, whoever resists those authorities resists whom? God. A heart in rebellion to our governing authorities is a heart in rebellion to God. So our posture towards the government is a heart issue. Secondly, humility. By which I mean the humility to admit that I am incapable as an individual and we are incapable as a society of governing ourselves. Government is a gift of God and it is not unnecessary. If God hadn't thought it necessary, he wouldn't have given us government in order to regulate and preserve and even prosper fallen human society. But he has, which means the third attitude we need to have is gratitude. We owe to God gratitude for his gift of government. And we express this gratitude through submission to the governing authorities that he has placed over us. We need to be governed. And God has graciously provided for our need. So we begin with the overarching command. What is your responsibility to the governing authorities? First and foremost, it is to be subject to, to submit to, to have a posture of reverence, humility, and gratitude for the government which God has placed over us. Not a posture of rebellion or resentment or grumbling discontent. Next, the Christian citizen owes to his governing authorities obedience. Paul says in verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Then do what is good, says Paul. And by good, given the context, he has in mind, obey the law. Obey the law of the land. If the governing authority is instituted by God, verse 1, if he is the servant of God, verse 4, if he is the minister of God, verse 6, then we owe obedience to him as a part of our obedience to God. A point which Paul makes twice in this passage. Verse 1, therefore, whoever resists the governing authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And verse four, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You cannot disobey or disregard the law of the governing authorities without also disobeying the law of God. 
Now, there are times when those two laws come into conflict, a situation that we'll deal with in just a bit. But in general, we obey our governing authorities as part of our obedience to God. This means that we should have a posture and a practice of obedience toward the laws and the ordinances in the various jurisdictions by which in God's providence or in which in God's providence we live. The city of Nixa, the Christian County, the state of Missouri, and the United States. Those are the four levels of authority that God has placed over us. Now, as we covered last week, they have a God-given right and a God-given responsibility to enact and enforce laws, laws that are intended for our good. So what should the Christian do? Obey them. Drive the speed limit. Wear your seatbelt. Obey the building codes. Don't poach deer. You get the idea. Obedience to governing authorities extends beyond the biggies, right? Like murder and theft to those laws and ordinances which the governing authorities have enacted for our protection, our preservation, and the prosperity of human society. We are commanded to obey even the laws that we don't agree with. And finally, should pay your taxes. Which brings us to the third point. The Christian citizen owes to his governing authorities taxes. Again, Paul is painfully clear on this point. He says it twice. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, Paul mentions two forms of levies, taxes and revenue in the ESV. Now, according to John Murray, he says, quote, the tribute, that's the King James, taxes in the ESV, that's the first term. It corresponds to our term tax, and it's a levy on persons and property. The second term, custom in the King James, revenue in the English Standard Version, refers to the tax levied on goods and corresponds to custom payments, all right? So if we were to translate these two terms into our current context, the first one could refer or would refer to income and personal property tax, and the second one uh, would refer to sales tax. But Leon Morris is probably right when he says that it's probable that Paul's not really distinguishing sharply between these two terms, but rather by using both of them, he's just saying, in effect, pay whatever taxes you owe. Of more importance than the precise kind of taxes is the reason Paul gives for giving them. And I see two in this text. Why should you pay your taxes? That is all of them. First, because of conscience. He says, for because of this, I think he's talking about conscience there, you pay taxes. In other words, it is the right thing to do. And your conscience knows it. God has placed you under authority and you cannot live for God's glory unless you honor that authority. You may be able to fool the IRS, but you cannot violate your conscience and get away with it. 
And secondly, Paul says, pay your taxes because it is the government's due. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Then look at the way Paul speaks in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Owed is the language of debt. Now, I know this doesn't sit well with some of us, but taxes are a debt that you owe to the governing authorities. Now, some of my libertarian friends will routinely post memes on Facebook that have the, the Gadsden flag, you know, that's that yellow flag with the snake that says, don't, don't tread on me, and, and they'll put over it the phrase, taxation is theft. No, taxation is not theft, not if those taxes belong to the government by God's decree. And I don't know any other way to take what Paul says here than that the governing authorities are God's ministers who devote themselves to this service and that the laborer is worthy of his wages. God has appointed those ministers for a particular tax, task and God has appointed taxes to be their wages. And not only do taxes go towards the wages of public servants, they go towards the maintenance of public services. It's amazing to me how many people complain about paying taxes who don't complain about driving on smooth roads. Or taking their kids to public parks. Or sending their kids to public schools. Or calling 911 in an emergency. Or the manifold other services which the government provides. Listen, if you don't like the present tax code, then thank God that you live in a representative democracy instead of a dictatorship and exercise your right to vote in order to change it. But until then, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar by the decree of God and pay your taxes in full. Finally, the Christian citizen owes to his governing authorities respect and honor. Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. No great distinction between those two words. Uh, Paul likely uses them together for stylistic purposes. Regardless, it is clear that what is called for is both an outward action and an inward attitude. Both the way we speak to those governing authorities and the way we speak of those governing authorities. In other words, respect refers to showing the customary deference paid to a position of high rank. Uh, In ancient times, it would mean bowing before a king or a ruler. In more modern times, it means using the proper honorific title. If you're addressing the queen, you would call her your majesty. If you're addressing the president, you would say, Mr. President. If you're addressing the judge, you would say, your honor. Good. But it also deals with the way that we speak about them privately or publicly or online. As I said earlier, it's precisely at this point that my conduct a while back was sin. Because what I was doing was holding up my president, whom God had put over me, to public contempt and scorn. And it was wrong. But this raises an interesting question. Is it possible to respect someone that you don't consider respectable? Is it possible to honor someone that you don't find honorable? 
And the answer is yes. It's not only possible, it is essential. How do you do it? By meditating upon this passage and what it says regarding governing authorities. Even if I do not find a particular ruler respectable or honorable, I must affirm that he or she is owed respect and honor, A, by virtue of their divine appointment to that position, and B, by virtue of the God-ordained function which they serve. In short, the office is to be held in honor regardless of the person who fills it. There's a story in the book of Acts that provides for us a model of what to do in that kind of situation. When, uh, when Paul was in Roman custody in Jerusalem and he was brought before the Sanhedrin so that the Roman tribune could ascertain what their charges against him were, Luke records this instructive interchange. Acts 23 verse 1, he says, in looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, who was no friend of Christians, he was not a respectable or honorable man. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike Paul on the mouth. Then Paul said, anger got the best of him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you have me to be struck? Then those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Note that. This was not a godly man, and yet God had put him in this position of authority. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So even if you cannot respect the man, even if that man is acting contrary to the law, he is owed respect and honor as God's minister. And those who refuse to be in subjection to him, whether outwardly or inwardly, whether in obedience or taxes or respect and honor, will be liable to the wrath of God and to a violated conscience. Verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of of conscience. Once again, we find that you cannot render to God what is God's unless you also render to Caesar what is Caesar's, because God is the one who has placed Caesar over you. To disobey and disrespect the ruler whom God has placed over you is to disobey and disrespect God himself. But there remains one burning question that needs to be answered, or at least Attempted. I was amazed as I wrote this sermon how un-American, how unpatriotic it sounded. Why? Because our nation was founded on rebellion. It was founded upon a revolution by people who refused to be subject to the governing authorities any longer. Furthermore, a great many of those people imagined that God was on their side in the conflict, just as there were a great many on the other side who imagined that God was on their side. And the question you ask is, were they right? If you are living in colonial America in 1776, do you join the revolution? What does Romans 13 say about our nation's heritage? How does Scripture judge our patriot forefathers? I'm not going to answer that question. That issue is 
far too complex to unpack in the last few minutes of this sermon. But I do want to close this message by giving you five thoughts to guide you as you consider if or when it is ever right to resist the governing authorities. Five thoughts. Number one. The situation Paul describes in Romans 13, it reflects the divine ideal and not the human reality, as John Stott wrote. It reflects the divine ideal and not the human reality. And therefore, the submission which God commands in this passage is contingent, not absolute. Romans 13 cannot be used, as it sometimes has, by tyrannical rulers to bind the consciences of their subjects to whatever laws they enact. There are limits to the ruler's authority, and those limits are established by the word of God. That's number one. Number two, a Christian may or must, would be better, Resist the governing authorities when those authorities command what is contrary to the word of God, such that our obedience to the one necessarily involves disobedience to the other. The classical biblical example of this is, of course, that of the apostles. When they were commanded by the Sanhedrin not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Acts 4.18, they responded, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then when they continued to preach Christ and were once again arrested and hauled in before the Sanhedrin, they replied, we must obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29. See, Jesus had commanded them to preach the gospel in his name. The Sanhedrin commanded them not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. They couldn't do both. So they had to choose. And they chose Christ. And so must we. Other biblical examples would include the Israelite women refusing Pharaoh's command to kill their male babies in Exodus 1. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down before the golden statue in Daniel 3. Or Daniel refusing to stop offering his customary prayers in Daniel 6. Number three. A Christian may resist the governing authorities when those authorities act contrary to their God-ordained function. That is... Instead of promoting the good and punishing the bad, they promote evil and punish righteousness. In such instances, the ideal government of Romans 13, a government in which the authorities are ministers of God, promoting the good and punishing evil, has been replaced by the demonic government of Revelation 13, in which the governing authorities are tools of Satan. To promote the evil and punish righteousness. And this is where I believe a biblical case may be made for revolution. When a regime has become so corrupted by evil that it can no longer fulfill its God-ordained responsibility, I believe it has abdicated the right to rule. In such a case, I think the overarching biblical demand for righteousness, justice, and truth, and life outweighs the Romans 13 demand for submission to governing authorities. In such a case, 
Revolution is necessary for righteousness. Number four, nevertheless, I think governing authorities should be given much patience and toleration by the citizens. They will not uphold the law perfectly. They will not always promote the good and they will not always punish the evil. They will at times promote the evil and punish the good. Why? Because they're sinners. They will sometimes enact laws that do not tend towards the flourishing of human society, but rather tend towards its decay. An example in our country would be abortion. Not only did the Supreme Court in 1972 legalize the killing of babies in utero, but for years, federal tax dollars have gone to Planned Parenthood. Between the years 2013 and 2015, $1.5 billion to be exact. Question, does this mean then that you should not pay your taxes because a portion of those taxes go towards Planned Parenthood? Ooh, ethics is hard, isn't it? Should we overthrow the government because of this grave evil of subsidizing abortion? No, you should not overthrow the government and you should continue to pay your taxes in full. And you should vote people into office who will actually do something about the situation and credit where credit is due, the current president has made strides in this direction. I don't believe that our government has crossed the arbitrary line between still being capable of fulfilling its God-ordained responsibility to promote the good and to punish the evil and has become so corrupt that it is no longer capable of fulfilling that function. We may get there one day. We're not there yet. So submit to the governing authorities and pay your taxes. Number five, even in cases when we do resist governing authorities for conscience sake, we must do so with respect for the institution of government and for those whom God has placed in authority. In other words, our disobedience must be with the aim of demonstrating our submission to God rather than our defiance of government, as Charles Colson once wrote. Now, remember the theme that we've been developing since the beginning of Romans 12. Transformation by the Spirit, right? Over this whole final section of Romans are the words, do not be conformed to this world, rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The point is that the Christian citizen is different than the non-Christian citizen. His relationship to the governing authorities has been transformed, just like every other relationship in his life. This is a point that missionaries have made for generations to rulers who attempt to restrict their evangelistic mission. They say, we're not being subversive. We affirm your right to rule. We have no aims of overthrowing your government. And if your subjects will receive our gospel, they will be better citizens than they were before. They'll be submissive. They'll be obedient. They'll be taxpaying. They'll be respectful. If you will but do your job to promote the good and punish the evil and let them be free to worship Christ according to the dictates of their conscience and according to the word of God, you'll have no trouble from them at all. In fact, they will pray that God would open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing upon you and your people. 
The question that I have for you this morning is, would such words describe you? Is your relationship to the governing authorities different for being a Christian? Namely, are you submissive, reverential, humble, grateful to God for his gift of government? Are you obedient in all things to the laws and ordinances of the governing authorities? Do you pay your taxes in full, not regarding it as theft, but as what is due to them as God's ministers? And do you regard and speak of those authorities with respect and honor which are due to them as the servants of God? May we glorify God by the way that we submit to our ministers which he has given to us for our good.